the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As we close out the week, we do so with a final look at the throne of God before moving on in Revelation. Abounding Grace is coming up next. Over the last couple of programs, we've been spending time here in Revelation chapter 4, looking at the throne of God. And indeed, it's amazing to consider. Now, not just consider the throne of God, but think about it. God's allowed this to happen. God has opened up the curtains, as it were, to give you and I a look into where He is, where He resides. That is amazing. Here's Pastor Gary with more on today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. You've got this glorious throne sitting on a massive sea of crystal with a crystal sky above it. At Versailles, the opulent palace in France, there's a hall of mirrors where there are all kinds of golden chandeliers, crystal golden tables and golden chairs and rich tapestry. And to make it even more magnificent, there was placed huge mirrors on both sides that just magnified the brilliance of it all. Well, that could be the point of the crystal here in our picture. Here is the brilliant throne. And this crystal is just magnifying the brilliance of the throne that sits right in the middle. It has a dazzling brightness. But it could mean something else. In the book of Revelation, or it could mean both. In the book of Revelation, there are some beasts that come out of the sea. Hideous beasts. Like Rome is shown coming out of a tempestuous raging sea, symbolizing depraved humanity built upon a principle of revolt against God. That's the way John would see the human race from Patmos. On the island of Patmos, he would look around and and see Rome and, and apostate Judaism like a raging sea persecuting him and trying to silence the church. And God says to John, Come up here, John. I want you to see what the human race looks like to me. A placid calm. Crystal sea. Now what is he saying? He's saying from your perspective, John, in the midst of all these waves and these storms, it is a ferocious thing. From my perspective, I have everything under control. There's no threat in this sea to this throne. It is placid. It is under my control. Then in verse 6 it says, 
And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf or an ox. And the third creature had a face like that of a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease saying. And then you have a record of the song they were singing. But add this to your imagination now. The throne, the sea of glass, the throne of elders, the rainbow, the tortures, torches. And now you have these four living creatures. One looks like a lion, one like a calf, one like a man, and one like a flying eagle. Each one of these living creatures has six wings. Each one of them are full of eyes around and within, and they never stop singing the song, Holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now the first question we need to ask, who are these living creatures? What do these living creatures represent. Now here again, we are not left to guess because God tells exactly who these living creatures are in Ezekiel chapter 10. Here again is how you let scripture interpret scripture. Ezekiel 10, 18 to the end of the chapter. Then the glory of God departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted up their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the Lord's house hovered over them. These are the living creatures which he had already said or already described in terms of a lion, the face of a man, a calf and an eagle. That I saw beneath the God of Israel by the river Shabar. So I knew They were cherubim. Each one had four faces, four wings, and beneath the wings was the form of human hands. Now, in the previous chapter, he described these living creatures, similar to that of John the Apostle. And now he simply says, these four living creatures are cherubim. Now, when the Hebrews would put something in plural, they would not put an S at the end of the word. They would put an I-M. So don't say cherubims. That would be like saying mooses. There is one cherub and there are two cherubim. So here it says that these unusual looking creatures with these distinct faces and these wings and all these eyes are specifically cherubim. Now, the fact that they have all these eyes is simply to emphasize that there is nothing in all of creation that is mysterious or hidden to God. And the fact that they have wings means that they are ready and swift to do God's bidding, whatever it may be. Cherubim never act as messengers or as ministering spirits, as do the angels in Hebrews 1. Cherubim are clearly distinguished from angels in Revelation 7, 11. In fact, cherubim are connected with the sovereignty of God as are the seraphim. You look at the vision of the throne in Isaiah 6 and you have the seraphim just like the cherubim in Revelation 4. 
Cherubim are connected with the providential work outworking of God's judgment and the deliverance of God's people. Let me say that again. Cherubim in Scripture are connected with God in the providential outworking of God's judgment upon his enemies for the deliverance of his people. Now, let me show you that in Revelation 6. In this chapter, you have these four creatures at work, and these four creatures are the ones who set in motion various aspects of God's judgment. So look at verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, Verse 3, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second leaving creature say, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, there was war to take peace from the earth. Then in verse 7, when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse of death. So throughout this sixth chapter, You have these four living creatures, these cherubim, as the instruments by which God pours out his providential judgment upon his enemies to preserve and rescue his people. Now, they're described as earthly created beings. These living creatures have the strength of a lion. They have the ability to render service like a calf or an ox. They have the intelligence of human beings or at least... Some human beings. Keep in mind, these are all figures of speech now. They have the swiftness of an eagle. Now, the number four is the symbol of the earth in Scripture, marking its four corners, north, south, east, and west. Four is identified with earth in Scripture. So these cherubim seem to represent all living creatures, angelic, human, and animal. And they are used in the revelations of God to highlight his total sovereign control over all of his created order. And these cherubim remind us that all of creation is under God's control. And they are serving God's purposes. And that everything that happens is being guided by God's providence. These creatures represent the highest the best, the strongest, the most intelligent, as it were, in creation. And all of the forces and energies of creation are under the control of the one on the throne to be used on behalf of God's people and to pour out judgment on the heads of our enemy like apostate Judaism and anti-Christian Rome and our government in Washington, D.C. Sorry, I had to throw that in. Now, Calvin said something that I wish he said more about. He only wrote about a paragraph about this, but it is so great. And it is one of the distinguishing features of a Christian worldview over against a humanistic worldview. A humanistic, materialistic worldview says there are innate forces in nature that drive nature along, that matter is self-created, and that matter has the inherent power to continue in and of itself, in fact, to improve itself, 
And in nature, there are various laws that are sufficient to guide nature along toward the future. Calvin speaks in terms of these four living creatures, but he never wrote a commentary on Revelation, not because he was afraid to, but because he died before he got to it. But if you really want to find out what the, some of Calvin's views on the book of Revelation might be, he did write a commentary on the first ten chapters of Ezekiel, and you can learn some very wonderful things there. But what Calvin says is this. All things are in motion, propelled by angelic energy. God's providence guides all of creation along, propelled by angelic energy. Now, we don't know exactly what he means by that, except to say that God uses angels in the governing of the world, in the carrying out of his providence, in causing things to continue, and in moving history along. Not because God needs angels, but because we need angels. Now, when we talk to humanistic science, we say, yes, there is this force that moves all matter along in history, but that force is called cherubim, angels. Well, such people are going to think that we stepped right out of the Middle Ages, which we did. And that is one of the distinctions that we do make. That nature and creation, matter, does not have the inherent ability to continue. It is moved along by angelic energy by which God's providence is carried out, which providence is always aimed at these living creatures in the pouring out of nature on his enemies from the deliverance of God's people. And, of course, again, this is not uh, angelic's powers even of themselves. They are given to it by God. Now, they sing a hymn, verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them having six eyes, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. And when the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who gives forever and ever, who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders break in singing but the song of the cherubim a short little chorus it's full of the truth notice the things that are referred to here briefly about god that all of the angelic beings all of the energies of creation praise god for his holiness his omnipotence his almighty power his eternity his unchangeableness that is he is the lord god he is Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word Lord Yahweh means I am that I am, the unchangeable eternity of God. And then we have this phrase that we haven't, or most people haven't really thought much of. This God who was, who is, and who is to come. That title for God emphasizes his continual coming which is another theme of the book of Revelation, showing that the book of Revelation is not primarily about the second coming of Christ. 
It is about the continuing coming of Christ into history by providence and by His Holy Spirit to convict His people and to rescue His people and to destroy His enemies. That is why God who sits on the throne is given that title. It is a Hebrew title that is written in Greek as near as you can write it. He was, He is, and He is present tense coming. That is what is meant here. He keeps on coming. He keeps on intervening into history. So you see this song from the cherubim is about a creation guided and controlled by God's providence. Then what happens next? Verse 10. Then the 24 elders, after they hear the singing of the cherubim, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Now remember who these 24 elders are. They are the church. All of creation sings about a creation guided and controlled by God's providence. And the church sings about how God cares for his church. It is the church of the living God. God alone is worthy of being praised because of all creation. Of how all God, uh, how, because of God's creation going along according to the will of God. And the elders praise God for it. That is, the only reason the world was created is because God willed it to come into existence. He didn't need it. He certainly wasn't lonely within the Trinity. God just willed the creation, and creation came to be. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. No one is worthy of this. Why? For you created all things out of absolutely nothing. And because of your will, they existed and were created. So that if anything happens any time in history, it is because of the will of God. If God does not will for something to happen, beloved, it will not happen. If God did not will for some aspect of creation to come into existence, it would not have come into existence. Everything is dependent upon the almighty God and his will. And the highest act of the church, the highest act that a Christian can do is to fall down and worship before that throne and to cast our crowns before it. These crowns of victory, these crowns of dominion that he's given us. We cast our crowns before that throne and we are recognizing then that all we have in our dominion is dependent upon that central throne. All that we have is because of the victory that is given to us by the one who sits on that throne. These crowns of victory being cast at Christ's feet or at the throne of God is equivalent to an acknowledgement that victory over sin and all of our enemies is ours only by the grace of Almighty God. Evil is real, but it is not in control. The divine purpose still stands. In other words, Revelation 4 is a pictorial representation of Romans 8.28. 
Revelation 4 says figuratively what Romans 8.28 says literally. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And Revelation 4 is a magnificent picture of that great truth. So, what is going on in Revelation 4? A worship service is taking place. This worship service has in attendance God who sits on the throne, all of the angelic and created beings, and the entire church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see in this worship service the four major truths about worship. What is true worship? At its most basic level, the first essential element of true worship is adoration of the person and character of God. That is what we come to church for. We don't come to church simply to get something out of it, although I hope you do. We come to church to give adoration to God. If our primary concern in worship is something we can get out of it, our worship is going to only be skin deep. If you want to have real, true, deep worship, you must have as the primary goal of that worship service to adore God. Now, how do you adore God? Well, you know, I heard recently a contemporary Christian song that merely repeated the words, I adore you, God, we adore you, God, over and over. That was it. Beloved, you don't adore God by telling him a hundred times in a row that you adore him. You adore him by telling him what it is about him you adore. Adoration is something that is very scarce in worship today. And that is why true worship is scarce. That is why we sing the old hymns and begin our service with a song of praise. So, beloved, practice adoring God. Do this. Take five minutes sometime this week to pray and just adore God. Don't ask him for anything. Just adore him with praise and see if you can actually do it for five minutes without asking for something. Now, he wants you to ask him for things. But really, the most important part of prayer is just adoring him. That is the essence of worship. The perfections of God, the object of your delight and study are what? Do you have love to gaze on the Lord by faith until your soul melts and rejoices under its power? You know, many believers occupy their devotional hours in looking too exclusively into themselves. And yes, we must examine ourselves. But they're contemplating their own wants and needs instead of opening up their minds and their hearts to the light and the heat of their glorious sun, S-U-N, the light of the world. So understand the primary purpose of worship is adoration. The second thing we learn about worship in Revelation 4 is that the second essential part of worship is consecration. We come to worship to bow before the throne and cast our crowns at the feet of the one sitting on that throne. That is, we consecrate ourselves 
by glad submission to his will. We consecrate ourselves to an entire devotion to the honor and glory and the praise of God. You see, the primary purpose of worship is not what we get out of it, but what we do with reference to God. We come to church and worship God primarily to adore Him and consecrate ourselves to Him. So let me conclude today with this quote from John Stott on the fourth chapter of Revelation. He said, The persecuted church need have no fear. At the center of the universe is a throne. From it, the wheeling planets receive their orders. To it, the gigantic galaxy give their allegiance. In it, the tiniest organism finds its life. Before it, angels and men and all created things in heaven above and earth beneath bow down and humbly worship. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you sincerely for this moving, unforgettable picture of your throne. And as we face our enemies in this life, as the early church faced her enemies, help us to look at everything that happens to us and all of our enemies, not from our puny little perspectives, but from the perspective of your throne. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402-1484, Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. <music>